started a, a one of the my blogs, which is called "I Hope We Never Find a Cure for Cancer." Ooh, that's a which, good provocative title. Yeah. Well, really, what it's about is, look, if we find a, a medical cure for cancer, we're never going to deal with mm-hmm. what its origins are, where this all came from. Yeah. We're just going to like, oh you know, we don't need to worry about all the chemicals in the environment now because we can cure cancer. Yeah. Fortunately, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I don't think we're ever going to find a cure without dealing with that stuff. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the E-Real to Heal podcast. And I am Nicolette Richet, your host of this show. And I'm also the founder of The Green Mustache and Richer Health Consulting and Richer Health Nutrition and Detox Wellness Center, where our restaurants, our retreat center, and our consulting company, we teach you. We teach your physicians, your doctors, we teach your family members, schools. Uh, We work with all different audiences to show them how they can use food as medicine. So we teach the art and the science of doing this. And when I say using food as medicine, we're talking about using food, the stuff that you put into your mouth three times a day, the snacks, the treats. We show you how to do it in a way that it actually heals your body so that it can arrest disease, especially if you have chronic disease like diabetes and infertility and autoimmune disorders and heart disease, the leading killer alongside cancer and diabetes. And we don't take that lightly. Our research is based on over 150 years of medical research that's been done, epidemiological studies. So those are population studies that look at huge populations that have been eating plant-based for generations and generations and how they remain disease-free until some of their community members may leave those places and start eating refined, processed, and ultra-processed foods. And that's where the disease is set in. So we show you how to go back to basics, how to use nutrition to fuel your body, to build the mitochondria in your cells, to give you the energy so that you can enter into a regenerative healing state where your body can heal itself, which it's designed to do. So on today's show, I am so excited to welcome Tim Yandow. Now, Tim has been studying and using nutrition and natural medicine since 1990, both to support his clients and to keep himself well and thriving. He is a biologist and a scientist who studied a huge range of topics from energy medicine with Barbara Ann Brennan to European biological medicine, nutrition and homeopathy with Dr. Thomas Rao, and so many gifted practitioners for over 25 years. So Tim is a wealth of knowledge. Now in 2009, he had to tap into that knowledge because he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I don't know if some of you out there have seen the ads over all of the all over the American television stations. I was just down in California working with Jay Abraham and our marketing strategy and our communications strategy. And I being in the hotels, it was interesting because we don't see those same ads in Canada, but in the United States, 
every advertisement on television is all based alongside pharmaceutical drugs or it's lawyers who are working with clients to sue the pharmaceutical industry for the damage that these drugs have caused. And in this one particular case, I happened to see that lawyers were looking for people who've been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as there is a link between glyphosate so that is the pesticide that's been used by Monsanto in extremity. It's incredible how much of, um, how many thousands of pounds of this pesticide have been used on our soils, which ends up in our air and our water. And so it was quite remarkable to see these lawyer ads on television looking for people who've been diagnosed from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So we dive into Tim's diagnosis and how he had to utilize all of that knowledge he had gathered for himself to help himself heal. And the story is beautiful because we are not against conventional medical technologies and drugs and surgeries and radiation or chemo. In fact, there's a time and place for everything. But if we can implement the nutrition first and all of these other healing modalities first, everything that's included in lifestyle medicine, well, we can further help people heal and we can also prevent them. Almost 90% of diseases we could prevent if people were to live by the lifestyle medicine principles that Tim had studied in. So jump into this podcast, learn as much as you can from Tim because he's really truly a gift to be sharing his experience with us. And from there, we are going to dive into what it was like after he healed himself. We dive into the story about his daughter, which is also a remarkable story. She came to work for us at the Green Mustache in Whistler. She has an incredible healing story that didn't require surgery. Um, it had to do with her having a cavernous angioma in her brain. We are going to have Tim's daughter on our show soon, so stay tuned for that. And if you like the show, please share it with other people. As well, if you want more information, sign up for our newsletter on any of our websites, either at greenmustache.com, that's G-R-E-E-N-M-O-U-S-T-A-C-H-E.com, or richerhealth.ca. And we'll be sending you every month, we send you an incredible newsletter that is just chocked full of invaluable information and also has information of any podcast that you may have missed. So if you love this podcast with Tim, please share it with others so that they can learn these gifts and utilize it for themselves so they can heal themselves, heal their families, and go on to live their most optimal life ever. So thanks for being with us. Eat well, do well, share the show with others, and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, Tim, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. Nice to be here. It is really a pleasure having you on the show. And as some of you know from the intro I just gave, um, Tim has a very warm place in my heart because he is the father of uh, Isla Yandau, who came to work for us at the Green Mustache when we first opened the first ever Green Mustache in Wisconsin. That's right. Columbia. Yeah. That must seem like a long time ago. It seems like so long ago, but I seriously hold Isla so close in my heart. And I know I mentioned this to you before. She's like a daughter to me. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I'm old enough to even be her mother. So that's kind of crazy. <laughs> 
Well, she ha has a similar fondness for you. <laughs> oh, no, she's so, so brilliant. Um, what I loved about everything about Isla, though, is, you know, how she was raised. Um, you know, all the stories she would tell me, like starting off with, you know, the fact that she went to a Waldorf school. Um, your Isla and your son both went to the Waldorf school. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I Isla went there uh, right through high school. And my son, Tobias, was there, I think, until fourth grade. Until and then fourth. he had, and then he and Waldorf didn't quite mesh so well at that point. And he went, he had actually went to several different schools from that point on. Um, and I think that's really interesting because when I wrote my master's thesis on de-schooling for an eco-citizenry, which I don't know if a lot of people know, um, that I chose such a radical topic, um, but really it was like, we need to do away with our education system entirely and not just educational reform. That's not what we need. We need like a full, entirely redesigned um concept of what it means to educate and what do educational environments look like. Um, and Waldorf was probably one of the schools that I researched at that time when my daughter was just a couple months old, my first daughter. And, you know, Waldorf was the one thing that actually offered so much of what an educational environment could look like that would develop an eco-citizenry. But at the same time, it's not for everybody. And so yeah. the one thing that I wrote about a lot and extensively is that, you know what, you don't have to send your kid to one place for their entire 18 years or, you know, 12 or 13 years of education. Like you can look at your child as an individual and decide on different educational environments based on the child's constitution, their needs, their learning styles, everything. And that's what you did with your kids, which I think is yeah. very cool. Yeah, it's exactly what we did. And like, for instance, with, with uh, Tobias, who took, you know, a different path. Uh, once he left the Waldorf school, you know, he was at a public school for a little while. And then he was at another uh, kind of alternative school. Um, and then he got involved with uh, a program called Croca Expeditions based out of New Hampshire. And they do semester um, expeditions, uh, one in Ecuador, where the, the kids go and they live with some of the native people there and they climb volcanoes and go rafting. So they learn crafts. Um, they have a, a very in-depth cultural experience um, and they do mountaineering. And they have a winter semester that he also did where they basically ski the length of Vermont on backcountry skis, a whole group of them. So they're out basically all winter um, skiing what's called the Catamount Trail, which goes from one end of Vermont to the other. Um, and then in the spring, when they're done with that and things start to thaw, they, they actually canoe back from north to south. So he's, uh, he really learned a lot <laughs> through what? those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. See, like that is what is so, I just think it's so incredible about you and of course, and how Isla turned out as well. And I haven't had the chance to meet your son, which I would love to meet him one day. But um, when you were making this decision to pull him out of the school, um, you know, like, were you scared? Were you nervous? You know, how, you know, how was your upbringing influence that, you know, contributed to the fact that you were able to make really what a lot of people would 
attribute to being a radical decision around your child's education because I know so many other parents who've done similar things are often told like you're making the biggest mistake you're going to screw up your children yeah right and yeah that wasn't the case for you like you went yeah no not at all you know it it just I think um both uh my wife Jane and I you know from the get-go you know our whole philosophy around um supporting our kids and growing up was to follow their lead you know and create a structure for them that we felt would help them grow as individuals you know and it's we're fortunate in that we had options you know here in you know in vermont to be able to do that you know there are several schools in this area um you know that offer different kinds of educational options um and then you know programs like uh croca over in new hampshire um so it it really to us it was just kind of a no-brainer um and it's it's actually very different than how i was raised um you know i went to public school you know right up through eighth grade and then i was at a uh, a, a Jesuit high school, um, you know, and then I went to university right after that. So I had a much more traditional uh, trajectory in terms of my own education. Um, but it, it just felt very organic to us to raise Isla and Tobias that way. Um, and, and honestly, I think, you know, most of our friends and our family were pretty supportive of that because they recognized that, you know, they were real individual kids with very individual needs so rather than try to you know put a you know a square peg in a round hole you know we wanted to find a good fit for them um, and, and honestly we're um, with with Tobias we're actually still doing that you know he's he's kind of a, a, a rising musician um, and he's now at 26 ready to go back to school and we're, you know, we're looking to some different programs that are going to be very experiential and performance-based for him as opposed to academic. Wow. Yeah. That, they're very, very lucky to have you as parents, um, especially because of the fact that, I mean, you just question the existing systems that are out there. And I think that's the one thing that, you know, anybody who's never done it before, because I know a lot of people when they knew what I was researching for my master's thesis, they were like, why would you why would you want another alternative school system like you don't we have public school systems they're free like i went to school and i turned out great like that's what they would say yeah 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 and they would never question the fact that the education system itself the public education system is a design system that was designed at one point in time where it did not exist and people had to come together and create it. And just that concept that it never existed at one point in time before was such a foreign concept to so many people um, when they learned about what I was studying. And uh, just the fact that you question, I think that is, yeah, I think it's an incredible, I don't know what that is. Is it a, do you think people are born with that questioning ability or is it something that you learned somewhere along the ways? I'm so curious about how, you know, you came to be who you are and a yeah. father who questions something that really is so innate now, people think that there's only one school system. Yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a really great question. I don't know that I have a good answer for that. Um, you know, I look at my, like I was raised, um, I have four other siblings um, and, you know, I was the youngest and it, you know, my, my, my older siblings say, you know, but by the time I came around, I think my parents were, I think so burned out from being parents that 
you know, I just sort of had free reign uh, in some ways. And, and that may have had, you know, some influence on, on how I developed the way that I think. Um, but again, I, you know, some of it, I think, is just sort of our constitution. You know, there are some people that are, they just sort of plug into the systems that we have in place and they're very comfortable with that. And others that just, you know, they, they follow a different path and there's something else deep inside them that lead them. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's how we are as individuals. You know, we're all, we're all kind of different. We're all different. Yeah. yeah. You also gave yourself permission to question too, because I think that's another thing that yes. I know a lot of people are like, well, I can't do that. And I'm like, well, who's to say you can't do that? Just give yourself permission to question it or to try something different. Or, you know, I remember meeting this one family who um, their daughter was probably about 13 or 14. And, you know, when she'd communicate with you, she'd look you right in the eyes and she'd ask lots of questions. And she was just so fascinating. And you don't often get to meet these 13 year olds in our society that don't yeah. put their head down in a phone. And, and so of course, you know, as I started to realize the difference between these alternative school systems and a public school system that maybe is not as progressive in their um, curriculum design and, and their environment that they offer, I started to pick out the kids that clearly did not go to a standard public school and so of course I asked her I was like yeah yeah where yeah. did you go to school and I'd ask kids at the bus stop like I could I they got to a point where I could tell just by the way they were standing there and gazing around at the world I'd be like I know that kid did not go to a public school and so yeah, sure isn't that amazing it yeah. is amazing yeah and I asked her, I'm like, so where did you go to school? And she's like, I went to pony school. And I'm like, what's pony school? And she's like, well, there's a place in Hawaii where you can go to school. And, you know, I didn't really fit in the public school system. So my parents let me go to Hawaii. And she's from Salt Spring Island here in British Columbia. And she learned the entire school curriculum through the icon of a horse. So they would like chemistry was taught through horses and, and you know she got to ride the horses and pet the horses oh clean goodness. the horses biology physics architecture but the always the central theme was horses and it's because she loved horses so much and that's how she made it through um through school so I mean there's just so many different and I can tell you hundreds of stories and I'm sure you have lots too so well Amazing. one of the things that I know about you um and Isla talked about this and again I was floored when Isla told me how her grandparents had started an eco village so tell us about that oh uh ten stones mm -hmm. it's called it's a it's a intentional community um that's uh that's here in vermont um it was founded in 19 let's see they started building in 1992 it took quite a few years for it to actually for the original group to find the land and um you know jump through all the hoops of actually establishing a physical location for the community, which is actually why a lot of communities fail, is that they never find, they have a great idea and they've got the right people, but they can never find a place or they can never find the funding to pull it together. Um, and then uh, we joined in 1994 um, and Isla's uh, grandmother, Judy, uh, was one of the founding members. And she built a house there. So they started really from scratch on 88 acres of land. And uh, so it was originally, uh, originally it was going to be uh, set up as uh, 10 homes in sort of a, a spiral with common land in the middle 
and then common land all around it. Um, and then we were actually able to add to the community later on. Uh, once that was all built up, we actually added uh, three more homes. Uh, one was uh, a, a duplex that was that we um, collaborated with the Vermont Land Trust on to create some affordable housing there uh, wow. because it was not exactly uh, the most affordable place for most people to live um, in the little town of Charlotte, Vermont on the, on the lake. Um, but it was, uh, so we joined there in 1994 and uh, um, Isla was uh, three years old at that point and Tobias was barely one. Um, so we moved there and that's where we raised them for the first 10 years of their lives. So we had um, their grandma Rue living there um, and this wonderful community of, of thir uh, 12 other families. Um, and there were some kids that lived next door and some of the other homes around the circle. And it was really in some ways a really idyllic place for them to grow up. It was, there was just, there was forest and fields and the lake was nearby um, and they, they really loved it. And we also had a little, uh, little league baseball diamond that we built in the middle of the green because there were young up and coming baseball players, including my son. Um, we had a lot of fun there and it was a lot of, and it was a lot of work too. Um, you know, having to run the place and have meetings and do a lot of decision making and problem solving and conflict resolution. Yeah. Um, so it was, I will say that it was very energy intensive at times as well, living in a, in an, in an intentional community. Yeah. Um, but we had, we had a big garden there. Um, we did, a, I won't say we raised all of our own food, but we raised a lot of food there. That's amazing. And in some ways, I think that that skill set that you gained from living in that community is the kind of, you know, skills and tools that you can take with you anyway. And they're like, they're survival skills because at the end of the day, it is easy to be like, oh, there's a strata to run it and they make all the decisions and, you know, to be passive in your, in the way that you live in a world. Um, Cause right now, like when we live anywhere, there's other people making our decisions, right? Like the, you know, taxes on our property and where roads can go and, you know, where your food comes from. And if the roads collapse and the food can't get to you, you're kind of screwed. So to be able to grow your own food, to be able to manage conflict, I mean, those are all incredible skills that you get from, from participating in that kind of community, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And, you know, we were fortunate, um, Jane and I, in that we came into that environment also having done a lot of inner work, you know, and in terms of getting to know ourselves and how we interact with people. So you have to be, I think, a little bit of a process junkie mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, to be that involved with that many people and be willing to, you know, work on your stuff as things come up. Yeah. Um, and Fortunately, you know, most of the people there were also willing to do that. And I think that was one of the things that really contributed to the success of the community. And was it mostly friends that came in or did people interview strangers came in? Yeah. How was that? People came in from all over, you know, and, and there was even a point. Um, we were the fifth family to join and build there. And we went through one very lean and kind of scary winter where we weren't sure we were going to make it. 
Um, in fact, we got to the point where we were looking at subdividing the land because we just didn't think financially we were going to make it. And we, you know, we got really clear again with our intention and we, we just, you know, we, we basically were, you know, putting our prayers out there to say, come on folks, we know you're out there, you know, there's, there's a place for you here. And, you know, lo and behold, in the spring, we had two or three new families come in um, to join the community and, and then things sort of gained enough momentum from that point, uh, from that point on. And yep. the community is still thriving? It is. Yes. Yep. Yep. We left there in, um, 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, Jane's mom continued to, to live there until she passed away, uh, in, in 2017. Um, in fact, we were there just the other day, uh, for, um, they set up this beautiful memorial arbor for her in the garden in her memory. That is incredible. Yep. So the community is doing very well. Oh, that's amazing. And what were the deciding factors for you leaving? Um, I think we were at a point where we had, uh, we were not process junkies anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We were ready to kind of focus our energy a little bit more on, on just, you know, Isla and Tobias and our own careers um, and, you know, where we were headed. You know, I I think we were kind of felt like we had given our time um, at 10 stones, you know, everything we had, and we were just kind of ready to move on, you know, similar kind of thing. We just, we all kind of listened deep inside, you know, Isla was ready to move and Tobias felt like he was ready to move. Um, And it was, it was good for us to do that. It was good timing. Yeah. And I think as we raise our kids to like different stages of their lives require, you know, different levels of support. And I know for myself and my experiences that when the kids were young, I was so happy to live in this wonderful townhome complex where every day you just open your door and there'd be kids around and they'd be playing together and you had the support of the other parents and you'd cook together. And then as they got older, I started to realize I'm like, I'm not seeing my kids because they're always with the neighborhood kids and I want to see them. And then that's when we like moved to, you know, we got a single family home and it's more isolating, but at the same time, I have way more time with my kids. Um, And yes, and I don't have to you know, it's just more quiet time and, and more peace for me to be able to process my own thoughts and really put it towards like, you know, yeah. my career as well. So I can completely relate to that. Now, okay, so here you are, someone who, you know, raised your kids at the Waldorf School, you questioned, um, you know, Tobias's education, pulled him out of the Waldorf School, he went to this incredible program, um, where he got to do like incredible cultural activities, you you know, raise them in an eco village. So I know anybody who's listening to this podcast is going to be like, okay, well, this guy's a radical thinker. He's already very alternative. (laughs) You know, as you know, the reason why I love having you on the show is because we're also going to chat about you being diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and also you taking a very alternative and radical approach, but I don't want to go there yet because I lay the foundation um, for just how, wacky a thinker you are and wacky in such a good way, meaning progressive and uh, free thinker and somebody who also is a systems thinker as well. Um, So tell us about the work um, that you have done with your clients in the past, because you studied nutritional healing and energy medicine as well. So tell us a little bit about your training and the kind of work you did with your clients there. Yeah. Well, 
let me preface that with with something I was doing before that. Oh, so sure. my my traditional training when I went to the University of Vermont was um, was uh, I was trained as a field biologist. Okay. And um, I started working for uh, when I graduated. I worked at a research station in Colorado. Um, in the Rockies, uh, an, an Arctic and Alpine Research Institute, because that was really what I was interested in. I was also a, uh, a very active mountaineer at the time, so the two meshed together very well. Um, and then I linked up with a, um, uh, a fellow who was doing uh, Arctic research out of a place um, in Woods Hole called the Ecosystem Center. And he hired me to be um, one of his uh, field uh, assistants. Um, so I spent a summer setting up some of the early climate change um, uh, research sites up in Alaska at a place called Tulik Lake, um, and it you know it was a wonderful place uh, you know to to be. It was an incredibly beautiful place uh, to work. Um, but during that summer, uh, something began to shift inside of me where I just felt like really what I was I was heading down a road where what I was doing was studying the effects of what we were doing to the planet and not really addressing what the source of those effects were, which are people, you know, it's like, we're the ones that are doing this. And, you know, this was long before anyone was really even talking about climate change back in the, you know, back in the mid eighties. Um, and so through a, a, an interesting series of, you know, synchronistic events, I began to get interested in uh, more introspective, more interested in my life, my spiritual life and my emotional life. Um, and then I had an interesting illness, uh, which was much less serious than having cancer, um, that got me involved in, introduced to homeopathy and acupuncture, but it also uh, put me in a place where I couldn't go back to Alaska. I could not be in this remote environment. Um, so I made this, I made this career change at that point. Um, I went and spent some time at the Findhorn Foundation in Scotland doing a lot of inner work. What? Uh, yeah. I was just telling my friend yesterday about Findhorn because my parents actually, um, built a house on the Sunshine Coast and oh, no kidding. British Columbia. And, yeah. but my mom chose, she always dreamed of living on a rock. So she literally built a house on this big rock and she grows apples and peaches and strawberries and like a gazillion <laughs> vegetables. But, you know, she brought all the soil up there and now like there's this, it's so lush and vibrant and there's bears and deers and bees and birds and you know on this rock but i was explaining how fintorn was pretty much grown on a rock yeah. as well and it's a yeah. and sand. community yeah it's insane it's absolutely so remarkable so but i was saying that if the whole world literally did you know go to crap tomorrow like my mom would be the one who'd be feeding you like feeding the world you know because yeah. she can grow food on a rock just like you know who was what was the name of the woman who started fintorn um that was eileen and peter caddy Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yep. And, that's such a beautiful um, story. So tell us about Finhorn. Tell yeah. us about Finhorn. So, so anyway, um, um, I went there to take some workshops 
Um, and I went to a conference there. It was one of the first, what they called the One Earth Conferences. And I met my, uh, not, we weren't married then, but I met Jane there and we went to this conference. And it was really life-changing for me because it really made me look at the world in a very different way. And it made me look at myself in a different way. And then I started getting interested in, um, in alternative healing modalities. Um, and eventually that led me to um, studied with Barbara Ann Brennan studying energy healing. So I did her four year program. Um, and, uh, and that was just incredibly eye opening and also helped me with a lot of inner development. Um, I practiced the work for a little while, but because of my background in biology, um, I was sort of more interested in, um, in taking that further. So I began to study um, nutrition, uh, clinical nutrition and homeopathy and um, herbal medicine a lot more. Um, and eventually um, linked up with a group of practitioners that came over from Europe, from Switzerland, uh, to teach what they call European biological medicine, which is kind of similar to uh, what functional medicine is here. Mm -hmm. um, and so I learned all kinds of things about um, uh, working with food, um, homeopathic uh, remedies to help with um, drainage and cleansing systems in the body. Um, I used, I utilized um, uh, live cell microscopy um, and another uh, modality called computerized regulation thermography, which is a, this wonderful um, German-based uh, scanning device that sort of gives you this amazing picture of the physiologic um, functionality of the body and where it may be blocked both physically and energetically. So and these, is that through heat it's done? It's a little differently than that. What it does okay. is it, it, it um, it's, yeah, it's not thermography as like most people understand it. It's more testing specific thermal points on the body oh. um, that are related to um, uh, the, both the nervous system and, um, and acupuncture meridians. So basically what you do is you scan the points. Uh, you do one run through, I think, as I remember, there were like 40 points. And then the person cools down um, in a temperature controlled room for about 10 minutes. And then you measure the points again. So it's basically creating a very small stress on the body and you get to see what its physiologic response. And then there should be a normal response to that. And if there isn't, you, you tend to see that in the, in the, in the printout mm -hmm. uh, on the computer screen. You can see, oh, there's some abnormal responses in the digestive system with the liver, with a particular endocrine gland or something like that. And it kind of gives you hints around um, which systems need support for a person to either maintain their wellness or to deal with, you know, whatever ails them at the time. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, but there's people who are practicing that now. And if anybody is listening to this and they wanted to go get that done, where could they get that done? Yeah. You know, um, uh, I'd have to, uh, I haven't done it for a while, so I'd probably have to, I could, I'd have to look it up and see, but the, the, the uh, as I remember, it was called a CRT, okay. computerized regulation thermography. And I can't even remember right now the name of the company that developed it. 
But I think if they were to like Google CRT thermography, mm -hmm. that would come up. Amazing. Um, and, and I know one of the people who brought that over from Europe um, is a fellow named Dr. Dan Bielen. Mm -hmm. And I believe he practices in California. I, I haven't been in touch with him for quite a while. Um, well, I'll but, look it up and yes. we'll provide some links in the show notes. And I just love putting things out there for people because at the end of the day, when it comes to someone who is battling a chronic illness and has health concerns or just want to, you know, improve their health, I mean, there's dozens of different, you know, not even dozens, hundreds of different modalities that you can use everything from, yes. you know, nutrition is a foundation. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, and that was that was always the basis of everything that I did was you first start with how's the person living and how are they eating? Exactly. Not only what they're eating, but how they're eating and what their relationship to the food, to, to what they're eating is as well. Yeah, so, yeah. so important. Um, I know that uh, we just put out a, a newsletter last week and we got this very, very heartfelt um, response, an angry response from uh, a reader who said, you know, that we were fat shaming. Um, and it was because we were celebrating mm. Josh Lejani and a few other clients that I've had. Uh, Josh was never a client, but he was someone who he was, had weighed over 400 pounds and he lost 200 plus pounds when he turned to plant-based whole foods as medicine, um, when he got off all the refined processed food and he cleared up all his chronic health conditions that he had, but he also fell in love with the plant-based diet. He also fell in love with the running and being able to run again um, and being fit and healthy. And he also lost 200 plus pounds. But I think, you know, the reader really just saw us as celebrating the fact that, you know, he lost weight. And I was like, well, absolutely not. The most important thing that we do with our clients is we celebrate the fact that the person no longer has mental health issues. They no longer have physical health issues you know, in the, from the neck down. I mean, it's all connected. Um, they're not in chronic pain anymore. They also don't feel bad. Um, you know, all of these things. And it, but it brought up, her letter brought up like such important conversations because of the fact that um, at first and foremost, we always put nutrition first. It is a foundation um, to absolutely everything. And so it's good to know that um, that you consider the same thing, but we also then like to complement with everything, everything from a little bit of exercise to meditation and mindfulness and, um, you know, thermography, if you need thermography to understand things, homeopathy, I mean, there's, you know, nutrient supplementation. Oh, there's so many, yeah, there's so many tools out there. So many, and yeah. energy medicine, which we're going to get into next as well. And it's so important that people know that there's more than one option, which is just surgery or, you know, medication. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, and, you know, we can talk about this more too, but, you know, that can be a double-edged sword as well, because, um, you know, I was fortunate, um, you know, when I was diagnosed with cancer, with, with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, I had a pretty good idea from my training what it was that I knew was going to be helpful for me, which is not the case for a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, and, there's so much information and so many options and different directions that people can go in. It can become overwhelming. And now with, you know, with, with uh, the internet, you know, I mean, you could absolutely drive yourself crazy trying to figure out what direction to go in. 
But um, that inner work, though, I think is what we all need to be doing because when you do that inner absolutely. work and you learn to listen to yourself, then you choose the things that, you know, actually it's your, you know, we talk about intuition, but I really just believe it's deep, 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 intense observation. So people yes. want to think that it's like intuition is something that's like a gift you have or you don't have, but really it's the art of intense observation. So to know that, you know what, like, you know, I'm really just going to trust that it's my gut. So I'm going to choose something that's going to really, you know, work on my gut. So maybe it's like eliminating something out of the diet or introducing something into the diet, or maybe it's going for thermography when your breasts are aching, you know, and you might have, you know, not you, but you know, a lot of women will have, you know, fibrocystic breast disease, but you know, they trust their intuition and say, well, I think that maybe it's because of this. So I'm going to go get this test as opposed to this other invasive test because it feels better. But a lot of people don't know, number one, how to observe, and they also don't know how to trust themselves, yeah. right? And yeah, the trust piece is really big. Because then you can weed through the sea of information out there. And at the end of the day, too, it comes down to choosing something, Yeah. right? You just got to choose yeah. one thing, go for it. And if it works, amazing. And if it doesn't work, then you go, okay, going to try something else as well. But um, it is true for you. You had a wealth of information going into your diagnosis. Um, and so how did you end up choosing... Um, your treatment and what, what, and what did you end up choosing when you had that Hodgkin's lymphoma? Um, well, interestingly, um, one of the first things that I did was to look in my mouth <laughs> oh. um, because um, as part of my training in biological medicine, they talk a lot about biological dentistry. Mm -hmm. and the connection of your teeth to the rest of your body. And guess what? They're, you know, our teeth are not separate from the rest of our bodies, which we tend to kind of think of them as being isolated, you know, um, because I knew right off the bat, it's like, okay, I have a, a lymphatic cancer. So something's going on with my immune system. There is there is some load on my immune system that is not allowing it to function well, which has opened this door up for these lymph nodes, which at that time were in my groin, to begin to grow. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because they had kind of gone on and off for several years, and then all of a sudden, in a in a few month period, they started to really grow rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I knew I needed to do everything I could to clean up any infections that were present in my body. So again, I was very lucky. I was connected to a dentist who knew what they were doing to do an alternative type of dentistry. And I had root canals in my mouth. I had crowns. I, you know, I knew that my mouth was in rough shape and I didn't realize just how bad it was until we actually went in there and started to, to do the work. So and eventually, I ended up having all my teeth out. So I actually have full dentures now. Oh, and wow. it's the best thing I ever did. I mean, I miss having my own teeth. But yeah. the amount of infection and, and the pathology that we did um, uh, in a lab of, of what was in there was just astounding. Oh, tell me more about that. I want yeah. details. Yeah, well, geez, I should have I should have pulled up some of the test results, but let's just say there was some very pathogenic bacteria 
that was just, it was like a smoldering fire in my mouth. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was in the upper jaw. It was it, on the upper teeth. It was in my lower jawbone, all the way into the back, all the way into where my, uh, my uh, wisdom teeth had been removed when I was in college. That had, that, those, all those sockets were infected. I mean, it was, so I went through two major surgeries um, to have all of this done. And it, the amazing thing was, as I recovered, not only did I start feeling better, not that I was feeling bad at that point, mm-hmm. um, but I, I felt my energy coming back. But it was amazing to watch my blood labs to see my immune system sort of come back online. Wow. You know, my white cell counts came down. You know, my blood work really started to level off. And a lot of other things like my, my thyroid function got better. Um, my digestive system got better. And so this massive load on my immune system really got cleared up. Um, wow. So I did that. Um, and of course, I really had to look hard at my diet and really get honest with myself that I was heavier than I really wanted to be. You know, I was, um, you know, at, at that point I was, I, I had, a, I was doing um, residential construction. I had kind of left my practice um, and started doing, um, as I was telling you before, my, my other love is, um, is building and um, alternative energy and uh, energy efficiency. Um, so, uh, so I was doing that, I was doing that work and I wasn't really taking care of myself in the way that I needed. And literally from the moment I got the news that I had lymphoma and I, and I, I guess maybe the, again, this is just my personality. I thought, you know what, I'm going to take every advantage of this situation and I'm going to really make the best of it. I, I actually got excited about it. I've, and I tell people that story and they look at me like sideways, like what? Like, weren't you completely freaked out? And I said, well, maybe for a minute, but that was followed by this, just this feeling like this is going to be a really interesting adventure. And I know, and I knew enough at the time that I wasn't worried that I, that I was going to get sicker or that I was going to die from the disease. You know, I caught it at, you know, it was sort of stage two, stage three. Um, I was, I just had this confidence that I would be able to work with it and get through it. Um, and that was a really important mindset. Um, so for me. important. Yep. And, and so I just kind of went at it and I, you know, I started eating a raw food diet. You know, I took out the meat and the dairy and the grains and the sugar and just like very quickly. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I, I, I worked my Vitamix and my juicer <laughs> every day, you yeah. know, and, um, and it was just amazing how transformational that was for me. And, and it was almost like in the first year or so, the cancer sort of took a back seat um, because I was, I was feeling so good and I was so focused on just getting better. Um, I was working with an oncologist um, at the University of Vermont Medical Center. And, you know, when I started working with her, you know, she was all ready to plug me in and start the chemo and, and all that. And I said, you know, we're going to, I want to do this a little differently. And what I need from you to start out with is I, I need for you to monitor me. 
Mm. I need you to do blood work for me and I need for you to agree to do PET scans so I can see how I'm progressing. And, and amazingly, she said, okay. Yeah, that is amazing. Yep. But she said, and this is kind of a strange thing for her to say, she said, we're going to do another PET scan in about three months and I bet you anything you're going to light up like a Christmas tree. Is that what she said? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, uh, or something, something to that effect. Yeah. And I said, I was like, you're, you know, bring it on, you know. Um, and sure enough, three months later, after the original diagnosis, I went and did a PET scan and there was no change. Wow. And she was kind of like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. She's like, well, I want to see you back here in six months, you know, yeah. or four months. I forget what it was. And we went back. There was no change. In fact, there was some a minor amount of of uh, remission wow. um, that had started to take place and she just didn't quite know what to do with me but she stayed with me you know she's yeah. like you know this is not my world I don't understand what you're doing but clearly something's working keep it up which not every doctor is going to say you know no. a lot of them will really fight you on it or they'll just refuse to work with you Oh yeah. They'll say, no, I'm not going to run the test unless you come in. Yeah. And I've had lots of clients where, you know, we are hundred percent on board with whatever treatment protocol you want to go through. And in some cases, like if you don't have time, you need to get a big mass that's like, you know, eating its way through your intestine. Oh, yeah. Right. So, so there's a time and a place for surgery. Oh, yes. There's a time and a place for radiation and chemo, but absolutely you understand your particular diagnosis and your prognosis. Yes. It's different if you're 89 and it's different if you're 24, yep. you know, and it's different if you're willing to make the dietary changes. And if you're not willing to make it, of course you have to go down some route, right? Doing yes. nothing is usually not a very good option, but doing something is going to teach you something. It's going to teach you if that something's working or if it's not working and if you need to pivot into something else. Um, so, yes. so that is amazing um, because I guess, like I said, I've had definitely my clients, doctors have said like, nope, if you're going to change your diet and you know, you're not going to consider all these other things, I'm not going to work with you. Or if you're going to change your diet and, you know, do chemo, I'm not going to work with you. It's like, you can't, do, you know, like they just say some of the most craziest things and I understand why they're doing it. But at the same time, if you can find a doctor like yours, that would be the ultimate solution. Somebody who can run the test because you do need someone to run some lab results to tell you. Yeah. No, and it was very, very helpful. Yeah, I remember, in, you know, one of the things I, that came back to my mind immediately when I was diagnosed was something that um, w one, of the, one of the Swiss doctors that I work with is a fellow named Dr. Thomas Rao from the Paracelsus Clinic. Um, he wrote a book called, uh, I think it's called The Swiss Miracle, and he talks a lot about biological medicine and, and nutrition in that book. He's a brilliant man. He's, he uh, started out as a rheumatologist and then got involved in biological medicine and helped establish this amazing clinic in Switzerland. But one of the things that he said about cancer, he said 90 to 95% of the time is cancer is not a medical emergency. No, exactly. And it's often treated that way. Like, gosh, you know, I mean, sometimes it is. I mean, sometimes you're dealing with very aggressive types of cancers that you've got to get right on. But a lot of times it's not the medical emergency that sometimes it's made out to be. And so, you know, with, with the few cancer patients that I've coached, I always encourage people, educate yourself, learn about your cancer 
you know, take your time in making this, this is your life. This is your body. You know, this is your, and you're hiring. Think of, think of yourself as hiring your practitioners, your doctors, your naturopaths, your whoever it is, you're hiring them. You know, you're not, you're not working for them. Um, And so this has to work for you. Um, And, and developing that kind of empowering, uh, empowered mindset, I think is, is just so critical in, in no matter, no matter what happens, really, um, it, it's a process and it's a journey. And exactly. the more that a person can direct that, I think the more they're going to grow as a person. Exactly. I mean, it's, yeah. you have to, um, I think it was, oh, I'm going to get her first name wrong. What's her name? Kathleen Turner or Oh my gosh, she's a PhD, but she did a, um, a she wrote a book called I think it was called Radical Remission, where she interviewed yes. yeah all Kathleen Turner I think, um she interviewed all of these participants and to ask them about you know what do they feel contributed to the fact that they went into remission and and you know quite spontaneously as well, and I mean number one food definitely all these people made changes to their diet. So that's really important to note, you know, but a lot of them change their mindset. But one of the ones that I think is so critical is the fact that all of these people, they decided to take charge of their health. They were not going to be bystanders. They weren't going to be puppets, um, you know, controlled by some, you know, um, mastermind who is going to make the decisions for them. And that was such an an important part of her. I think there's 10 different, uh, eight to 10 different aspects that you need to implement if you want to be remission. And they all have to happen. Like you can't just be like, well, you know what, I'm going to, you know, meditate my cancer weight. No, like, you know, mindfulness is important, but so is the diet. So is taking charge of your health. And so is being informed and all of the other things in her book. So her book is really a really wonderful read for a lot of people. Yeah. Yep. And so when you were going through this, how was your family? Like how, what role did they play in the decision-making around like what you were going to do? Were they looking at you like you're crazy or we support you? Because I know family (laughs) decisions and their input, they play heavily in, uh, you know, in someone's decision on how they're going to move ahead with their cancer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, I was just, you know, I'm very fortunate to have a, a partner who is just totally on unbar- board. The, the interesting thing was that even before I was diagnosed, she was already beginning to experiment more with raw food, uh, plant-based diets. You know, she's she's always sort of a step or two ahead of me. Um, and so, you know, when I was diagnosed, you know, our whole mindset was, okay, what are we going to do here? And um, there was just no question about the fact that we were going to work on this together. And she was so instrumental in my recovery and just helping me. I mean, it takes work. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's at least where I live, there's no juice bar I can go to right, you know, right across Mm -hmm. the street, you know, that's going to prepare, you know, fresh uh, uh, green juices for me every day and all the other food that I need and all, and all the herbal remedies and supplements and things that I took and it, it's work. So we put a, you know, we put a whole plan together and she was, you know, she was right there with me and you can imagine where Isla was. She was just like, you know, go dad, you know? <laughs> 
um, exactly. and Tobias the same way. And, and it was interesting. One of the things that I decided to do, which I think is important for people to think about is I was, I kept my diagnosis fairly private to a kind of a small circle because at that time I was running my own business um, as a builder um, and I didn't want it to get out into the community like, oh, Tim is sick, he's got cancer, because um, I felt like that would have a detrimental effect on my business and the guys who were working for me at the time. Um, so I kept it sort of under wraps. And so I had this very tight circle of people who knew what was going on, you know, my immediate family and my siblings and um, um, my, my mom who was still alive at the time. Um, and I have, um, a, uh, a sister, um, who had also gone through breast cancer, um, who was incredibly supportive of my process. Unfortunately, we, we lost her in mm. this past November, um, after her was, she was dealing with that for 18 years. Um, and, um, yeah, finally it was just became too much for her. Yeah. Um, but she was a huge inspiration to me in terms of what she did in terms of dealing with her cancer. Um, so, so how I managed it was important. And so I had a really tight circle of, of family and friends that were supporting me through the process. And also just a team of, you know, I had a naturopath on board. I had my oncologist. Um, I had a therapist that I was working with. Um, an herbalist who had studied with um, um, Donnie Yance, who wrote the book, um, or what's it called, Herb, Herb, Herbal Medicine Healing and Cancer or something like that. Um, but he's been a real pioneer in um, uh, botanical oncology. What's his um, name again? Donald Yance? Donald Yance. Okay, I'll look that yep. up and put y that in the show notes. Yeah, Y-A-N-C-E, I think is how it's spelled. Okay. Um, and... Um, uh, I think he is, he is, has founded what's called the Madeira Foundation. Oh, yeah, I know Donald Yance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you know who I'm talking about. Okay. So it was someone that had worked and studied with him for a long time um, that I worked with. And he was really very, very helpful and uh, a helpful part of my team. In fact, and as I remember, he was the one who actually sat down with me and went through the pathology of my diagnosis in really great detail, more detail than my oncologist had, and, and helped me understand that he said, look, if, if we don't gain the kind of traction that we need to from your program, you have the type of cancer that might actually respond very well to chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So don't put that away. And, and at the time I was like, there's no way I'm going to do chemo. You know, I'm like, I'm going to kick this in the butt. Well, two years later, I was, I was, let's say I was managing the cancer, but I could not get it to go into remission to the level that I needed it to. And he was the one who said to me, you really need to think about this. Mm -hmm. And I had to do this incredible 180 to kind of wrap my mind around this idea that this could actually be helpful for me. Right. It was a very, very hard thing to do. Um, you know, they, and they, and so my oncologist was like, I asked her, I said, what does this look like? They're like, well, okay, this is what we would do. We would do these five um, 
we would use these five medicines and then this other biologic um, that we have that are out there, these um, uh, targeted immune therapies that had come out for lymphoma. And I said, okay, here's what I want to do. We're going to go one at a time. You want to do six? Let's do the first one. Right. You know? <laughs> so um, it was interesting. I remembered talking with a, 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 a fellow student when I was at the Barbara Brennan School who had cancer. And I remember her talking about when, uh, you know, and this was back in the early 90s, she said one of the things that she did to um, accept and embrace that treatment is she made these little stickers and she put them in, on the bags, on, on the IV bags, and there were these little flowers on them and on the sticker it said, pure love. Oh. And I thought, I'm gonna do that. Awesome. <laughs> And you do have to, because that's the thing. I see too many people who have this idea in their head. They're like, either I will never do chemo. Or I will never do this. Oh, I, I was totally in that, in that school. Yeah. And, and yeah. again, it's like, well, what about this? What about I will do everything it takes to not have to do that. But then if that's what I need, I will do it. And then if that's yes. what I'm going to do, I'm going to embrace it. And I'm going to believe 100%. Like I tell my clients, no matter what you choose, you got to believe 100% it's going to work. Because if you're doubting yeah. it, then you're going to create stress in your body, which suppresses your immune system. And then you're going to make it harder for whatever the modality it is, like whether it's surgery or whether it's whatever, you know, like if you, and I see, and really this comes from years of teaching prenatal and um, birthing, mm. helping women birth their babies, is that I would see them go in and they'd be like, well, I don't want a C-section. And then they would have to get a C-section because the baby's in distress and they're in distress. And yeah. then they would feel like a failure. Absolutely. Having, yes. Like, but yeah. why? You got a yeah. baby into this world that's alive and you're alive. Yeah. Right. Like that yep. is what is ultimately the most important, but they weren't seeing it that way. They're going based on an expectation. And as we know, depression really is that di the dichotomy between their reality and your expectation. And when those two are so fundamentally different, that's when depression usually sits in as opposed to guess what you can do. You can change your perception and your expectation. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, that is, I a hundred percent agree with you. And, and you know, and, and, I'm a, I'm a good example of, you know, making that choice. I, I'm like, yeah, I'm either, um, I'm either all in or I'm not. And I actually remember um, working with, uh, with a, a healer who I was a, actually a colleague with. I went and I did a session with him specifically so that I could do that 180. I said, mm. you know, I've got to get myself to a place where I can, I can utilize this this chemotherapy to the to the highest degree and I remember my sitting in the in the treatment room the first time you know they put the IV in and they set up the and I was like all right come on we're gonna you know do your thing you awesome. know and I was just picturing it you know coming in my body and just you know targeting the cancer that was there and and you know bringing light around all the healthy tissues and things in my body and it really made a huge difference so Two treatments later, the 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 um all the tumors were gone. What? Yeah. It okay, worked. so hold on. Let's go back a little bit because yeah. you had said that there were six different drugs they were gonna offer you simultaneously as part of your treatment yes. protocol, but you were like, No, I'm gonna do one. Well, no, no, I I did the full treatment. 
But okay. I said, yeah, so I did, the, there were five, five chemotherapeutic agents. Okay. That's what they call, they call R-C-H-O-P, R-CHOP. Right. And, and I forget what the, the different medications are. Um, but one of them is this stuff called rituximed, which is, uh, I think that's what it's called. It's a, it's a biologic. It's not a chemo yeah. agent. So it's pretty standard for, I, it's, I think it's pretty standard now what they're using. It is. Like, yes. yep. Yeah. So, um, no, but you know, my oncologist said, yeah, we can't just do like one. We know from the research that, and from outcomes, it's the combination that's going to work. I was like, okay, but let's take this one treatment at a time. Oh, one treatment at a time. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And so, so after I did the, two, so I did the first treatment yeah. and there was just a slight reduction. I did the second treatment and they were almost completely gone at that point. And part of that I attribute to both my mindset, but also my body was so cleaned out at that point. I was eating such a clean diet. Everything was working so incredibly well. And I think my body just utilized that, those medications to such a high degree yeah. that it was, it was just like, it was ready. You know, it was ready to utilize um, those. And so I think I ended up doing one more treatment after that. And of course, with chemo, the toxicity builds. It's, it's kind of by design. Yeah. And by the time I got to the third, I really started feeling like hell. Oh. Um, and and, and I, I kept working through this whole thing. In fact, I remember the house that we were building at the time. <laughs> I was going through treatment. I don't know how I did it, but somehow I managed to keep going. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. But that's what I want to ask you is that, I mean, it's, uh, there's two questions. One around uh, environmental factors around non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. I want to chat with you about that before I forget. But, um, yeah. and I know it's just, it's very subjective, your response, but um, how much of your healing um, and your remission do you think is based on the fact that you pulled out all your teeth, you took care of your dental work, you switched your diet, you switched your mindset, all of that. And I mean, of course it's, you know, it's hearsay now, but you know, how, do you have any feelings about that? If you had gone into treatment without having made any of those changes? Oh, I mean, I think they were instrumental in my getting better. And, I, you know, obviously I don't know what would have happened if I had just sort of taken a conventional uh, approach to it. But a couple of, there are a couple of huge things that came out of my experience. One is, I understand, I mean, my understanding of nutrition took, you know, my, my knowledge of nutrition increased by leaps and bounds. I mean, I had already studied clinical nutrition for years, but the, the, the training that I went through going through healing from cancer was like nothing else I had ever experienced, you know? Mm. Um, so that has continued for me. I mean, I am eating as well now as I did then. I mean, I was eating a more of an intensive therapeutic diet at that point. Yeah. So I've made adjustments to that, but you know, I am, you know, I juice pretty much every day, you know, and I, and I still eat primarily a plant-based diet. Um, I, I do eat some poultry at times. Mm -hmm. I find my body needs it. I've gotten to know, you know, what my needs are, particularly, you know, you know, just being very, uh, a very active person. Um, so I have found what works, 
you know, what works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't eat grains. I know that grains are inflammatory for me and that that's a big, um, big piece of, of being able to stay well and to de- decrease our, um, any future possibilities of developing other types of diseases that are often related to inflammatory um, conditions. Right. So understanding nutrition in a new way, understanding also um, how empowering that was for me to take control of my situation. I mean, I really learned what I was made of, you know, and I've, I've had some people just say to me, like, I don't know how you ever did that. I don't know how you were able to kind of take the bull by the horns and not get completely frozen in fear. And so my self-confidence and my understanding of myself just, again, it increased so much through that experience. So, you know, even if, even if what I discovered was, you know, doing the raw food diet and the dentistry and all that, that it actually didn't, um, have the effect on the cancer that it did, that it kept it at bay. It, it did go into remission to some degree. It bought you and time. Yes. Even if it, like none of that worked, I wouldn't have done it any differently because I learned so much in the process, you know, and it was very empowering for me. Um, and and it, it just continues to help me to this day, um, just in terms of my own mindset, in terms of how I deal with day-to-day challenges. Yeah. So, so I think, I think mindset, um, how it affected me spiritually, how and how that has affected my immune system, both the energetic immune system and and the biological immune system, um, it's just was just enormous. So, you know, I I think of the outcome as the whole of everything that I did. Yeah, not just the remission. Yeah, and not and none of those things in isolation. It was everything. Yeah, together, one big system, whole body, living, mind, spirit approach. Um, And this is, yeah, not everybody's situation is going to be like that, especially when they do have an aggressive cancer and they have to move, you know, quite fast, right? Because they may not have the time or the resources or the time or the money, like anything to be able to um, dive into that as well as that open-mindedness and trust that they can discover things for themselves and accept that information that they're discovering as legitimate to use in that moment. And so one of the things that um, you mentioned is, and I wrote it down here and it says localized, and I just have to remind myself, why did I write the word localized? Oh, it comes back to, you know, the, was it, is it Don, uh, Donald Yance who said that cancer, 97% of cancers, 95 to 97% of cancers are, um, it's, it's not a rush to treat them the way we think that it is. Oh, no, it was uh, Dr. Rao who said it, it's not a medical emergency. Right. Yeah. It's not a medical emergency. And, you know, when you have an oncologist who treats it like a medical emergency, like treats every cancer like it's a medical emergency, we need to get you in, we need to cut it out, we need to radiate and do all exactly, which yeah. happens to a lot of people because the minute they get diagnosed, it's like you're on the train, right? You're on the treatment yes. train. A lot of people, I've had clients come to me here like, they found a mole. And then before I knew it, I was in the hospital and a huge chunk of my leg they had taken off. 
And I yeah. didn't even know if they did a biopsy or not. Like they literally have a concave, you know, missing piece of their muscle out of their thigh. Another client that happened to as well out of her calf. And it can happen so fast wow. that before you know it, you're like missing oh, organs yeah. and you don't even get a chance to make a decision. And this is that localized theory of disease, right? Where it's like, oh, we found the problem. Let's just get it out as opposed to taking that entire systems approach. So then yes. I wrote down the word environmental after I wrote down the word localized. And, yeah. you know, being a biologist, being somebody who is mindful about climate change and the state of the world and, um, you know, how everything is connected. Did you ever take an environmental look at your cancer? Is it being not just inside your body environment, like your teeth and your immune system and lymphatic system, but also external environment as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And did you ever um, find anything in your research? Well, um, you know, there were, when I looked back at um, things that I had done, you know, like from, and things that I had been exposed to, mm -hmm. um, both in my childhood, um, in high school, and um, I worked in a couple of biochem labs um, when I was at, uh, um, in college, I realized that there were some things that I was exposed to that I was not properly protected from. You know, lymphoma in particular is, is, you know, very much a, a cancer of the environment. Yeah, that's why um, I asked that question. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, now, of course, you know, we're, you know, lo and behold, you know, we're seeing that with Roundup, you know, with all the recent news around, um, around, you know, this stuff that people used to think that they could drink. So I remember as a kid, um, my grandfather spraying DDT at his farm to get rid of the mosquitoes before we had dinner. Oh my you know, God. And we would run around in clouds of DDT. And I tell that story to people. Back in the sixties. Yes. Yes. And they would, and they would also, uh, in the early sixties, I was born in 62. I remember them, the trucks coming in. I, I grew up outside of New York city. And they would spray it, you know, during the summertime to deal with the mosquitoes. They would come into people's homes and spray it like on the countertops and as like yes. there's food being prepared and they would just spray it inside the house oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. So that, so that was, that was an, kind of an obvious thing. Um, but also, you know, I remember working, um, I worked in this plastics fabricating uh, uh, this small company when I was in high school and, you know, I remember washing my hands with acetone, yes. you know, just like, you know, just we'll get the plastic off. And, you know, I probably did that for a year. And then, you know, who knows what I was exposed to in some of these labs. Um, you know, we were working with, um, you know, isolating plant proteins and things like that with radioisotopes and, you know, and, and using all kinds of chemical reagents and things. And, you know, so I... I'm, I'm sure that that, you know, um, contributed to a lot of that. And, you know, and I was brought up as a, you know, a mac and cheese and tuna helper kid, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so nutrition was not, uh, you know, big on my, on my parents' priority list, um, 
even though they were both doctors. Right. Um, oh, they wow. didn't learn a lick about nutrition when they were in medical school in the 50s. And they still, and they still don't now. Like now and it's anywhere from zero to maybe maximum four hours yeah. worth of yeah. nutrition training at most med schools. Um, and it's also that, um, you know, I never with my clients, never, ever, ever try and isolate one point as being the contributing factor to their cancer. Yeah. It's a confounding effect, right? And you just spoke to that. It's, you know, years of not being protected to chemicals, being exposed to chemicals, um, you know, not eating the most nutrient dense diet or clean diet. It's, yep. you know, growing up at a time too, where you grew up in the same time that I did, where you could smoke inside. So now you're also, a, you know, a victim of secondhand smoke, <laughs> right? Like, you know, on airplanes and in hospitals. Oh, I know. It's just, uh, we just, um, my son and I just flew out to LA to look at a music school. And I was telling him, we were on the plane. I was like, do you realize that there was, used to be smoking sections in an airplane? I mean, how ridiculous is that? <laughs> I know. Well, it's why they have the no smoking sign still on the planes. It's yeah. like to tell people, no, sorry, you can't smoke here. It's, it's, it's hilarious. I know. So, yeah. I used to come yeah. home, like I used to serve in bars and restaurants and I'd have to come home every night and change my clothes and wash my hair because I couldn't go to bed because I reeked of cigarettes. And I mean, that was my job was to dump the ashtrays as I collected yeah. all the beer glasses. And, you know, yeah. and I tell my daughters that and they're like, what, how is that possible? Like it was disgusting. Yeah. But we are in that day and age um, where I think diet, like the food, the process refined foods we eat are the equivalent of the cigarettes back then. Yeah. Right? And we will probably have that same, um, like be laughing about the time when like, remember when people used to eat Chef Boyardee and think that that was food? I, I really hope so. <laughs> yeah. I really hope so we get to that point. Um, you know, before I forget it too, the, the other really critical element for me in terms of understanding uh, sort of cancer-inducing factors was stress. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things that, sort of popped into my mind right away when I was diagnosed is this job, my work, my company is killing me. Mm. Because, I mean, I really liked building at that time, um, but it was very, very stressful. And, and I knew uh, at that point that at some point I had to figure out sort of an exit strategy to either change my role um, you know, make some changes in terms of what I was doing because I was working easily 65, 70 hour weeks every week. And it was just, you know, doing the building, you know, creating estimates, doing the billing, you know, running everything, you know, running payroll. You know, I, I, I was, I was a one man band. Um, and it was gratifying. I had a very successful company and it actually grew bigger after that <laughs> because I thought, well, if I get a little bigger, maybe, and I bring some other people on board, maybe things will get easier. Yeah. That didn't work out so well. Um, so I recognized that um, really dealing with the stress that I was under was really, really important. Um, and then eventually I ended up making a, you know, a career change, which we can talk more about later if we want, yeah. um, you know, related to what I was doing. But, and, and that was just also another huge step that, um, that the going through cancer really helped me to take um, mm. and just recognizing the role that stress plays in, you know, in its effect on our immune system, its effect on us emotionally and spiritually. 
and we we kind of talk about stress in a very general in a very general way kind of like we talk about nutrition but for everyone it's very specific and if, you know a lot of times you don't have to dig that far to really recognize what those stressors are in your life yeah no and yeah it's showing up for yourself and being honest with yourself it's about asking yourself you know how much longer am I going to betray myself? Because I think a lot of times we do that when we're not honest with ourselves. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that you're raising this now. We just had a meeting um, with our corporate team just before, you know, I jumped onto this podcast with you. And that was one of the things that, you know, I brought up and I said, you know what, we just hired this new awesome dynamo woman who's going to help us grow the company, but it's growing it in service of, my health and my husband's health, which seems ironic, but it's actually to say, you know what, we have an exit strategy in place. It can look like these five different things. Like it could look like selling, it could look like going public. It looks like, you know, all of these things, but it definitely means it's getting my husband and I outside of running the business because of the fact that, you know, we've been in this, it's only been five years, but it's been five intense years. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah running restaurants is not easy. Running plant-based, 100% organic food restaurants, even 10 times harder. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. But it's because, you know, and I love doing it. Like I love, love, love doing it. So it's, you know, people often say, oh, I'm looking for my passion work and the, you know, the work that I love to do, but just know that the way you run your company, whether it's a job you love or a job you hate, also has impacts on your health as well. And so it's like, okay, how can we work less in the next two years? Um, and not to say that we're going to not work as hard. It's just to do it in a less stressful way, right? Yeah. I might still work 80 hours a week, but it might just be doing on something that gives me more freedom to, you know, fit in exercise. And yeah. Yeah, I have a hard time picturing you in the in a lounge chair on the beach, just kicking back. <laughs> no, I definitely will not be doing that. Like, I, you know, and I even just said, I said, I'll go to my grave with my other company, with my health consulting company, because it's yeah. teaching and I love speaking, but it has definitely a different level of stress than, you know, running restaurants for sure. And so, you know, yeah. And while I'm not ready to, you know, give up the green mustache and put it over into somebody else's hands where they're going to compromise the values and ethics around the business, because I think it's going to be hard to find somebody who has the standards um, that yeah. we have when it comes to food and nutrition. But I know, though, by having that goal in place, it means that, well, number one, yeah. I'm putting my health first. And it really all is all because of my health. I have to yeah. be vibrant and healthy to be able to make anything succeed. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, I'm going to work my as hard as I can and make as much money as I can and, you know, health is, you know, whatever. Yeah, or, you know, I'll do it until I retire. And then when I retire, then I'm like, no, most people don't. Yeah, then I'll take care of myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know yeah. that that is such a delusional thought. I don't know where that concept came in, but so many people buy into that. Like, oh, I'll wait till I retire too. And I'm like, I can't do that because my health is right now in this moment. So it's interesting that, you know, to hear your story because that resonates so deeply with me um, right now, you know to the point that I know I can't keep going at the rate that I'm going. Yeah. 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 And stay cancer free or disease free or anything like that. So you changed your career. So you, did you sell your business or did you just walk away, close it down? What did you do with that? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I basically um, sold my business. Um, I had uh, another friend of mine who was a builder and our company sort of merged together. And so also the, um, the guys that I had on my crew 
were they were able to continue their work, you know, so it was more of a kind of slow merging. Um, it wasn't sort of a traditional buyout kind of right. situation. Um, and, uh, and I did, I did it kind of slowly over about a year and a half um, uh, period of doing that. And, um, and at the, at the time that I was doing, making that transition, uh, a friend of mine who works for a, um, an energy efficiency uh, uh, company here in Vermont, it's called Efficiency Vermont, um, had told me about this um, nonprofit organization that they were looking for um, an, a new associate director to work with the director there. Um, and so I thought, hmm, that sounds really interesting and kind of right up my alley. Um, and, and what's the name of that organization? Is it called? Um, the... It's called Champlain Valley Weatherization Service. Right. Um, and it's, uh, it's part of a bigger nonprofit um, called CVOEO, Champlain Valley Office of Economic Opportunity, that's based here in Burlington, Vermont. Um, and so the weatherization services is, is one of the programs. We also run the uh, Vermont Head Start uh, education program. Um, one of the food shelves here. We have a, um, an economic empowerment um, program called Financial Futures. Um, and it's, it's all driven around um, helping people get out of poverty. Mm -hmm. um, but also, um, specifically, the weatherization program is, is, is a huge part of helping to deal with climate change. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, it's funny, I've sort of come like full circle uh, in many ways uh, in the work that I started doing, you know, back in the 80s. Um, and it's, you know, the work's very gratifying. We work with, um, you know, it's an income um, el eligibility based uh, nonprofit program. We get most of our funding from the state and a little bit from the Department of Energy. Um, and, you know, we just, it, uh, we work with a lot of people who are, very, um, you know, it's very cold here in the wintertime <laughs> in Vermont, and they have, um, they're very compromised in terms of being able to stay warm in the wintertime. Yeah. So the work that we do there really helps to lower their energy burden and their energy costs. And, you know, for some people, it makes the difference between whether they can stay in their home or not, particularly elderly people. So are you retrofitting their homes then? Yes, we're doing yeah. You're doing the physical retrofit, retrofit work. Yeah. yeah. So we so go through the whole process of, of doing electrical analysis and thermal analysis and the, you know, the whole energy audit that we do. And then we have crews that go in and, you know, they air seal and add insulation and upgrade the, the heating systems in the house. So it's, it's a full, you know, nuts and, you know, uh, uh, nuts and bolts uh, uh, program. Yeah, and it's, amazing. it's wonderful. And I've, you know, I have a crew of, uh, 25 people that I work with and everyone's very committed to the, to the mission there. Yeah. And, and it, and it's funny how, you know, I, you know, people, there's some days where things just get really crazy there and people are like, gosh, this, this is such a stressful place to work. And I look back and I go, you know, compared to where I was, this doesn't feel stressful to me at all. <laughs> oh my God, that's how I feel about but, right now. I'm like, yeah, yeah it's like you have no idea. Uh, so, it, which makes me realize what a great career choice it was for me to to yeah. you know make that shift. I love it. it. It's so amazing how you know our your life, my life, ha are so 
similar, like you're like almost like the male version of me in Vermont, you know, having started off like an environmental work then moved into human health work and then nutrition work. And then I know, yeah. yeah, And I know, and I used to work uh, doing an energy efficiency retrofit program for the province and for um, national resources, Canada. And so we did the same thing, retrofitting all these homes. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, amazing. We worked with 29 different municipalities and having to teach the engineers about what that meant. And I also worked in the green building sector um, yeah. and helped start off writing the first uh, lead um, lead development uh, uh, documentation for contractors because I'd go into buildings and 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 I, we'd have to check the homes that they were and the buildings that they were building to see if they were following the lead standards. And, you know, you'd walk in, you'd be like, okay, who's using the wrong glue? You can just smell it, right? It's like burning the hairs out of your nostrils. Yeah. And the eyes would be like, what that stuff's good for you, you know, and we'd be like, uh, I love that stuff. Yeah, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and just teaching them about what it did like to their health and to yeah. their cells and you know everything like that. So, huh, I had no idea you were involved in that too. Isn't that funny? I know our kids yeah. went to Waldorf, yeah. and you know, there's just yeah. so many. We have right now. I say we're living in an eco village because we have. Um, several of our staff living on our property and like little tiny homes and um, oh, great. yeah. And yeah. it's been, and it's really, it's fantastic. Like I've always wanted to live in an eco village and we've yep. created one. Well, and, and one of the things I really pushed when I was a builder, I was part of um, what's called the Vermont green building network was also helping other builders distinguish between green building and healthy building. Exactly. Because they're, they're related, but they're two very different things, you know, and, and, and that was a hard concept for some people to really kind of wrap their mind around is understanding that you can actually build a green building that's super energy efficient. That's not a healthy house. Oh, exactly. That's, that's spend, actually a toxic house. Yeah. We spend so much of our time indoors and yeah. the VOC. So that's the volatile organic compounds that are in the air that you're breathing in every day. I mean, yeah. a lot of this stuff is emerging out of the, you know, the, the materials that people are using, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And is that what you're talking about? The like indoor air quality and Yes, exactly. Yep. And and I'm actually doing, I have a a couple of people that I've, that are, that have experienced, um, uh, have been um, chemically injured who are chemically sensitive now that I'm, I'm actually working with to both help them recover their own health, but also kind of recover, reclaim their homes Mm -hmm. because they're realizing that their homes are actually, you know, quite toxic. Yeah. Um, and so we're, you know, we're doing a lot of, um, I'm kind of doing, been doing that, uh, uh, some coaching work on the side, helping them, you know, with retrofitting and, yeah. and renovation and demolition and doing all that in a very conscientious way um, so that they can basically live in their home, continue to live in their homes. Wow. Yeah. And I love that you're working with you know, a lot of the seniors and a lot of families as well that are low income, because it is so true. We forget that, you know, we live in these climates and, you know, everybody's, you know, wanting to buy organic food and buy their their organic cotton t-shirts and, you know, and there's people who cannot afford to heat their homes and they don't heat their homes because they don't have a penny to spend on heating their homes or, you know, if they live in a really hot climate on air conditioning and a lot of people die in these like crazy hot spells. There is a question I want to ask you. I mean, there's so much we can talk about. 
Um, but having started off, you know, long before most people in the climate change world, how has that been for you, especially being in the United States, to be amongst so many climate change deniers? And you being a scientist and someone who's looked at the research extensively, what's that been like for you? Um, well, it's, it's frustrating. Mm. Um, but it's also, um, I don't know, I think for me, it, it's also, it, the sort of climate change deniers or denial is also part of a bigger mindset around not being willing to notice what's right in front of you, mm-hmm. you know, that's the um, hugest problem, or not even willing to be open-minded enough, you know. I mean, like when I hear people say, "Well, you know, I've 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 read you know enough of the research to see that there's a lot of holes in it," I'm like, "Well, have you really sat down? If you really have." You know, have you really read, you know, Bill McKibben's work? Have you, you know, have you even read, um, you know, An Inconvenient Truth? Have you ever sat down and read, you know, Al Gore's book from, yeah. from cover to cover? You know, I think if you did, you'd find the research pretty darn compelling. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's a perfect name for that book because it is. It's An Inconvenient Truth, like a lot of other things, you know? I mean... Yeah cancer fits into that subject too you know there's there are so many things that we are doing to the environment we are we are literally engineering new cancers and new diseases every year you know the 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 diagnosis book is growing and so many of these things are related to changes in the environment and we're going to see this more and more with you know we could probably do a whole segment on electromagnetic fields and cell towers and you know we are just guinea pigs here we have no idea what it is that we're dealing with um so i guess the frustrating part for me is is i like to be around people who are open-minded and 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 i'm willing you know if if the evidence is there to say well maybe it isn't Maybe climate change isn't what we're thinking it is, but mm-hmm. boy, it's pretty hard to think when you look at the evidence that it's, that it's not, that we're not having this dramatic impact on the climate. And it's not that difficult to understand how greenhouse gases affect the climate. Yeah. And, and everything that was talked about in the 70s and 80s, when people were talking and, and actually doing some of the climate modeling, every single one of those predictions has come to pass, you know, and we're actually seeing people dying from, from excessive heat. It's happening right before us. And even still there's people, well, these are just, you know, natural climate cycles. Yeah. And the number of like environmental disasters that we've never seen like in thousands. I mean, yeah. we're just sort of adjusting to the new normal, and and that seems to be kind of what we do. We lose the kind of big historic, systematic, um, you know, global thinking yeah. around things, and we get very kind of pigeonholed and and myopic about what we're looking at, and it makes it very difficult. Um, 
but you know, at the same time, I have to understand that not everyone has the experience and background that I do, or a lot of other people um, that I know have. And so I need to also, in, in their denial, I also need to be, um, I need to try to understand what their denial is about and, and have some compassion and maybe even empathy for that. Yeah, you know? be able to tell the story in a, maybe in a different way so that yeah. also- and not push them away and not close the dialogue down. Exactly. And I know for myself, like it's, um, you know, I've talked about this before in the podcast, but when you're in the environmental sector, climate change sector, green building sector, or anything, you know, social sector where you're trying to make change, one of the things that people who work in those areas also suffer from is this constant battle between hope and despair. Like you, you know, sometimes you're so hopeful and then other times like you realize like, oh my God, is this making any difference? And then you go into that despair mode and it's really this really hard fluctuating cycle on your spirit on your physical body and your mental state and um, and it's the same thing that we see in the health world as well like you know from nutrition where people are like yeah there's no research that shows that there's any connection between diet and cancer (laughs) and I'm like what research are you reading like you're clearly not reading the research the hundreds of years of research that's been done Um, but then you can't also just be like hey read this research article because somebody who's not scientifically literate won't be able to make sense of it right so then how do you take that science and distill it down, you know, not dumb it down, but just take it and distill it into a way that it's going to be accessible to more people. Yeah. Well, and I think an important part of that too, is to find ways, like particularly with nutrition, to find ways to connect with that person where it kind of brings it home Mm -hmm. to them, you know, maybe talking about some health issue that they're dealing with or, or, or someone that they know who's dealing with a particular disease is, is sort of a road into that conversation as a way to kind of make, you know, make the link. I think more and more we're going to be able to do that with climate change too, because more and more people are going to have direct personal experiences of the net effect of climate change on them. You know, yeah. not just people living on the coast, but, you know, we had it here several years ago with Hurricane Irene, mm-hmm. you know, no one saw that coming. And it had a devastating effect on our state, you know, and, you know, we hadn't seen a storm like that in, I don't know how many decades. Yeah. And it's almost like, I, you know, and I hate to say it, but I say it because it's like when somebody has a diagnosis like cancer or an autoimmune disorder that leaves them like debilitated and they can't work or, you know, type two diabetes and they're facing amputation and their blindness it's when they hit rock bottom that they all of a sudden are willing to consider the alternative and to start making the changes. And it's the same way with climate change as well. It's like, you know, when your seaside house gets flooded by, (laughs) you know, like that's when you're all of a sudden like, I should take this climate change thing seriously. And, you know, it feels my youngest daughter yesterday, she was asking what a tsunami was and she's eight years old. And, and, you know, as I was telling her what it was, she was like, Oh, and I thought, it's actually a metaphor for where we are right now with climate change in that it's like we're staring out at the ocean, watching the wave like get pulled out and we have no idea how it's going to come and just slam us in the face so violently. And that's what I feel like, you know, we're already there with chronic disease, but I don't think people see it that way. Like we didn't have these chronic disease rates 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago. Nothing like it at all. 
the tsunami has hit us. Like we are in the epidemic of cancer and other chronic diseases. But I think when it comes to climate change, I think it's just that wave is being pulled out right now. And we're standing on the beach just watching it. Yeah, like going, wow, look at that. The water is going out. I wonder what that's all about. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's quite scary. It's quite scary. So how do you maintain hope and optimism throughout all of this? I have, you know, and again, I think that's just part of my personality as I, 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 you know, I tend to be a, a glass half full guy and I won't say that I have my moments. In fact, the other night, you know, we, we took the red eye out of LA to come back to Vermont and we were, you know, we took off and we circled around the city and I just remember looking out the window at this just sea of I mean it was beautiful to see the sea of lights but I also just had this incredible moment of despair like you were saying of like oh my god I mean this the there's there's so many people on this planet there's just so many people and the things that we're doing every day are just having this this exponential effect you know every every single day it's it's just you know you can almost you can almost just feel the carbon you know coming you know you know hovering over the city you know it does it just it just feels like this massive slow moving glacier that's just unstoppable yeah and then meanwhile we're in the plane contemplating right here i am in this airplane yeah you know yeah it's our whole lifestyle is just so um, intertwined with fossil fuels and it's, there's just, and at the same time, you know, like, like here in Vermont, we have, we have our 2050 goal of, you know, being 90% renewable. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a long way to go, but, you know, there are just, there are more and more states and countries that are, you know, even, you know, even in, even though we have certain people who are major climate deniers, you know, that are, they're just like, nope, we are, we are just gonna keep moving ahead with this because this is something we need to address. Oh yeah. Um, And the people are going to come up with the answers. You know, it's not going to be our governments that come up with it. It's going to be the people. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of it's happening on a very, on a very local level. Um, And you know, just like I discovered when I was up there working in the Arctic, I was like, you know, the answer to all this is going to come from within inside each one of us one at a time, you know, and to, to have that resolve to say, you know, I live on this planet and, and I'm, I'm part of this huge complex ecosystem and I cannot pretend that I'm an island and that I'm isolated from that in any way. No, exactly. Everything is so interconnected. And I was walking through the forest the other day um, and I was just looking at everything in the fern and the soil and the trees and the waterfall that was coming down and the dirt and the leaves on the trail that I knew was going to turn into the, into the hummus that would, you know, become the nutrients for the next cycle of, you know, ferns and trees that would pop up. And I just, my mind couldn't stop going and seeing this interconnectivity all around me. And then my question was like, how do you teach this to someone else? Like how, or, you know, how do you, I don't know, like, you know, for me, it's been a few decades of learning this and how do you take a few decades of information and research and science and knowledge and experience and observations and 
put that into something that you can you teach it to someone or I don't know it's such a it's such a beautiful thing to be in that moment where you see it all connected and of course then I take it further to being like I want everyone to experience this because it is so magical right yeah yeah you know a couple of uh a couple of winters ago um I actually started writing a book on about well, it wasn't really so much about my cancer experience. There was maybe one chapter on that, um, but it was really more about the the principles that I think are really necessary to recover um, from cancer. But I did a section. Um, one of the chapters that I did was really about just about that, which is that really one of the things that's contributed to this cancer epidemic is just how incredibly disconnected we've come mm-hmm. we've come from the earth and from how how the the earth and our bodies are just one continuum and that and and it and uh and I actually went I sort of went back several thousands of years in our human history to where that started to change you know, from, you know, if you even, you know, if you go back to um, early Chinese history, mm-hmm. um, the pagan traditions, all these things that were, that were so earth oriented, where people had this sense of reverence for the earth that sustains them, and a recognition that if we're going to be here and survive on the planet, we have to recognize that we are part of this planet. Mm-hmm. And that what we're seeing is the end result of not living that way. And it's, it's that connection that's so hard for people to make. And yet it's, it's making that reconnecting with that, that I think is such a key part of both personal recovery, but also, also ultimately what the healing of cancer is going to be about. I even wrote, I haven't posted it yet, but I'm, I started a, a one of the my blogs, which is called "I Hope We Never Find a Cure for Cancer." Ooh, that's a which, bit provocative title. Yeah. Well, really, what it's about is, look, if we find a, a medical cure for cancer, we're never going to deal with mm-hmm. what its origins are, where this all came from. Yeah. We're just going to like, oh, you know, we don't need to worry about all the chemicals in the environment now because we can cure cancer. Yeah. Fortunately, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I don't think we're ever going to find a cure without dealing with that stuff. Oh, yeah, no. And my brother's a biophysicist and biochemist who does cancer research in Copenhagen. And he's at one of the leading research firms there. And he says the same thing. He's like, the way we are approaching it through, um, you know, scientific method and thinking that it's going to be a synthetic chemical that's going to cure cancer. He's like, come on. Like all the principles come, yeah. And all the principles come from nature. That's like, they are trying to emulate the principles that already exist in nature and then trying to synthesize it. And that's where the disconnect is, is at the moment they say, let's synthesize it. And, um, you know, and that's, that's a problem. I really love Dorothy McLean's book, um, to honor the earth reflections on living in harmony with nature. Um, I have that book on our coffee table and it is, you know, definitely going to live there for the rest of our life for anybody who wants to know how we can honor the earth. And it's funny that you say that about your book. When is your book coming out, by the way? Do we have an idea? We are the cure. Yeah. Is that the, 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 the cancer book? Yeah. Your book. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to finish it this winter. 
Okay, nice. Yeah. And I love that there's a lot of humor in your book as well. Yeah. What's that? That there's a lot of humor in your book as well. Is that the same book we're talking about? No, no, it's a different. Uh, well, there's. Uh, I'll get to the joke book in a minute. Oh, no, that's okay. A that's a different. Oh, that's book. a different book. I didn't realize yeah. you. Too. No, this this book. Um, I I was. Uh, um, I did the um, the Institute for Integrative uh, Nutrition Health Coaching program several years ago, and and then I enrolled in their in their basically in their what they call their dream book uh, publishing program. And so I started writing the book. It's called um, "We Are the Cure," um, and but for a number of different reasons, I never I never finished the book. It's sort of half written, but I would really like to finish it. I need to I need to kind of simplify it. It's it's mm -hmm. become sort of like a dissertation, yeah. uh, both a historical one and 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 also just getting into the nuts and bolts of yeah. here are things that you can do to empower yourself to to heal from cancer. Um, so I do hope to finish that. Um, I and hope also, to finish it too. Yeah, you got to finish that for the world. They need to hear it. Yeah, I know it. I do. And then, and then also, um, and there's another book that that my wife Jane and I want to work on, which deals specifically on environmental toxins, mm. dealing with those both, you know, in your home and in your body, and 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 how to deal with those because I think that's also going to be a really critical part of how we live every day that's going to help also deal with all kinds of different diseases. Um, but then there's, then there's also, um, when I was a little league coach, um, we were taking our team up to, uh, to see uh, the Boston Red Sox. Um, uh, it was a, um, a major league baseball game. And we got stuck in traffic uh, on the way up to Montreal. This is when the Montreal Expos were still up there. And, and somebody, somebody did one of one of the kids did one of these name jokes like, "What's a good name for a uh, you know a guy who hits it out of the park all the time? You know, Homer. You know, <laughs> or um, you know, what's a um, you know what's a good name for a guy who likes to work out all the time? Jim. You know, and <laughs> and all the kids just started cracking up in the and and so <clears throat> my my fellow coach Jeffrey and I started writing these things down literally on the back of an envelope, you know, just writing down these different name jokes. And I actually put, put this together in a little manuscript. I think we had like 120 of them or something. And it's, it's literally sat here on my, on my shelves for about 15 years. Um, and, you know, I, I would pull it out every once in a while and people are going, you know, you, you should, you should publish that or, you know, do something with that sometime. And I'm like, oh, it's just a silly name joke book. Um, and then last fall when my, uh, when I, I spent a lot of time with my sister out in San Francisco and she was going through her process um, with cancer and, and, you know, and ultimately, um, you know, ended up dying in November. Um, you know, one of the things I thought about was, was actually finishing this, finishing this joke book and using it as a way to actually um, uh, raise money mm -hmm. to help people pay for alternative therapies. Because that was one of the things that she struggled with all the time, and a lot of people do, mm -hmm. is, you know, being able to, you know, even be able to, to, to buy a juicer, you know, you know, and, and, and set up their kitchens, um, you know, with a, with a juicer and a Vitamix and a dehydrator and all the things that you need to, um, that are very helpful in eating a, a nutrient dense plant-based diet, but, but also a therapeutic diet. 
um, but also, you know, being able to pay for some, you know, uh, alternative therapies that are for the most part not covered by um, exactly. insurance. So, so anyway, um, it's it's almost done, and I'm working with this young guy who's doing illustrations for it. So it's just a, it's we've whittled it down to sixty, I think. That's um, amazing. Of, of these jokes, and so um, it'll be ready soon, and we'll have it up on on our website um, when that's um, and um, if people are interested, and they and and again, the proceeds from this are going to go um, uh, again to help to people to finance their their alternative therapies. Um, through a variety of different foundations that I'm connecting with. Amazing. Well, we are going to carry that book at the green mustache once you have it all ready to go. Awesome. Because we would love to sell it on your behalf as well. And I think that that is a good segue to wrap up this talk. It has been amazing with you. There's been so many, I have like literally three pages of notes um, that I've been taking. Um, We're going to include a lot of the information that you shared in the show notes as well. Um, And thank you so much for sharing this incredible journey with yourself everything from being a biologist and working in climate change um, to being diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and what you did. I think all of that information, all the steps that you took, I mean, those are going to be key nuggets for people who are going through their own similar diagnosis um, and choosing therapy options as well. So thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, my my pleasure. Um, And, you know, if people want to connect with me or if they want to purchase the book directly, um, uh, our uh, both Jane and myself, we have a website. It's called Lifelong Wellness. Uh, and the, the website is lifelongwellnessvt for Vermont.com. Um, and you can go there and, and um, we have our, our coaching services posted there. Um, and you can, um, you can buy the book directly from us and we'll send it to you. Um, and then other future publications will be on there as well. And, and our blog posts are on there as well. Um, so, or if, you know, if people have connect, uh, have questions or they just want to connect with me, if they're going through um, their own process of recovering, I'm, I'm always happy to help people out where I can. That is beautiful, Tim. And that's was yeah. the next question I was going to ask is how do people get in touch with you? And I'm so glad that you've made yourself available to our listeners who are going to hear this podcast, because I'm sure there's going to be several that want to get in touch with you. Um, also, when you get your manuscript, or I don't even need the manuscript, I just need uh, a proposal from you. And I'll send that off to our book publisher, who is all about making um, sustainable change in the world. So if you want to send me a proposal for the other two books, I can send it off to our publisher. Oh, that's so, wonderful. Yeah. Yes, yeah, they're great. publishing there in Florida. Really great team to work with. So I'd be happy yep. to connect you two as well. Wonderful. I would very much appreciate that. Yeah. Well, it's been a, a delight talking with you. And uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks, Tim. And give my hugs to your family and an extra big win to Isla as well, who we're going to have yeah. on the show next to talk about her own healing. Yes. She's got an incredible story as well. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. And I hope you enjoyed that show with Tim. Tim is an incredible gift to humanity, not only because he has studied in multiple areas, but because he is curious. He tried things. He tested what worked and what didn't. He 
was passionate about it. He was open about it. And, you know, he went out there and he sought solutions to his health challenges and his health issues and he took a multi-pronged approach so that is something we all need to consider doing when we've been if you've been ever diagnosed with a chronic illness or or anything that is debilitating in any way is that we have to look at the illness or the condition from multiple different angles and that is something that Tim did and it's something that you can easily do too but I hope what you've learned from listening to this podcast is that it takes courage no doubt it takes the ability to question everything around you and that courage also applies to implementing different things to try and see if these uh, these solutions work for you now when it comes to being diagnosed with a chronic illness, I highly recommend um, something that we teach uh, through Richer Health Consulting is we teach you how to develop a whole health team. And on that whole health team, it may include having a chiropractor, an endocrinologist, a physiotherapist, an RMT, uh, registered massage therapist. Did you know that getting massage, just getting massage, can actually stimulate healing in the body, which actually helps grow mitochondria, which produces even more energy that can contribute back to the healing cycle. So that's one of the many ways that you can rebuild your mitochondria. Nutrition always first, but you can have a massage therapist on your whole health team. An oncologist, seek out the best of the best oncologists, the ones that are open to working with you and also to working with the different modalities that you choose to have in your healing cycle as well. So if you enjoyed Tim's podcast, please share it with other people because other people, those friends and families and colleagues in your life, um, they can benefit from, you know, maybe it's just one thing that Tim shared, or maybe it's many, many things that Tim has shared with you or that we've shared with you on our many, many podcasts that we've had with our incredible guests and healing heroes and doctors that we've had on our show. So share this podcast, send them the link right now. Don't wait a second longer because the sooner they have this information, the sooner that they can heal. So check out our podcast on iTunes, on Spotify, and all the other channels where it's available. And sign up for our newsletter at richerhealth.ca or nicoletterichet.com or thegreenmustache.com. And we'll send you just invaluable information on how you can use food as medicine in your life, as well as all the other lifestyle factors that need to be addressed so you can turn your health around. Eat well, do well, and looking forward to seeing you on our next show.